How do you think Polos is doing? As a central banker, you know, I think he's doing. I think he's doing. No, a good as job. a human being, like is he a good father? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, of course, <laughs> as a central. <laughs> Money Mostly Canadian Podcast with your host, Freep Banerjee. Welcome back to Mostly Money. I'm your host, Preet Banerjee, and on the show today, the most requested guest on the podcast is back. Ben Rabidou, an expert in Canadian housing and credit trends, checks in again to explain what's been happening on the real estate front in Canada in the last little while and why you should take out the biggest HELOC you can so you can buy Bitcoin futures. Okay, that part was a joke. As usual, before we get to the interview, thank you again to the listeners who have left star ratings on iTunes and a special thanks to those who have left reviews. Alpha Gob, who says the podcast is better than a shorthanded goal in overtime. Clearly a true Canuck. BMKJP, who wants me to get Michael Katchen back on the show. He's the CEO of Wealthsimple for an update on how things have progressed since the last time he was on. So I will reach out to him in, um, in 2018 and see if he's willing to come back on. He's kind of a big deal now. So I don't know if he'll give me the time, but that's uh, eh, worth a shot, I guess. Incognito 50, and also Sean Richards, who started listening about three or four months ago. And hopefully, Sean, you are still listening, because I haven't podcasted in a while, as per usual. Now, if you haven't done so yet, I really do appreciate you taking five seconds to leave a rating on iTunes. And if you want to take the additional time to write in a comment on top of that, I do read them all. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's guest. Joining me now is Ben Rabidou, no stranger to this podcast. This is now the third time I think you've been on the podcast between the two versions of the podcast. I don't know if you remember, but the first version I think was called something really stupid like the Where Does All My Money Go Internet Radio Show or something like that. I do remember. Well ahead of its time. Um, and then, uh, of course, you joined. Actually, I think this is your fourth time. No, I think it's third. Is it? I think. I only remember. Well, maybe well, we I had too count. much to drink in one of those times. <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of, or I guess I should introduce you, although you're not really a stranger to the podcast, but just very briefly, uh, why don't you tell people what it is that you do, uh, and then we'll get into my various questions that I have on uh, all things credit and real estate related. Sure. Um, I run uh, North Cove Advisors, which is a research firm uh, where we track uh, primarily Canadian macroeconomic trends with emphasis on household credit and, and housing broadly. Um, clients would tend to be institutional investors, uh, Canada, U.S. and abroad. And uh, we tend to kind of try to have a view on housing rates, um, currency, and just the general direction of the broad economy. Excellent. And um, you emailed me out of the blue and said um, you really enjoyed uh, the podcast with Scott Terry, which was actually your push. Yeah, he's because great. Because I always had him on my radar. And then you said, hey, you should have uh, Scott on. And so I reached out to Scott and... Um, he was on and we ended up talking for like an hour and 45 minutes and people are saying, yeah, it could have been longer, uh, which is strange. You wouldn't expect that. Uh, now, the other thing that listeners always say is you've got to get Ben Rabidou back on. Everyone absolutely loves 
every time you come on the podcast. So, so cheers. Thank kind. you very much for, uh, for coming. My pleasure. I've got lots of questions for you. There's uh, a lot of things changing, um, you know, that we want to talk about in terms of real estate, housing, and credit. But before we do that, I thought I'd start by um, uh, just following up on the last podcast with Scott, uh, because Scott was kind enough to actually not only drink with me on the podcast, as you are doing now, <laughs> But he also brought a bottle of scotch. Um, no pressure. Um, <laughs> great guest. Brought a bottle of scotch. Uh, ben showed up empty-handed. Hey, That's I fine. offered to buy you dinner. That's you true. Gotta, that is know? true. That is true. Um, but we are drinking the bottle that Scott brought. So this mm-hmm. is uh, Glenn Morangy Quinta Rubin. Um, and it is absolutely delicious. So I know you're not, uh, you're more of a Beer guy, yeah, then? you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a huge heavyweight on the scotch, but I'm enjoying this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's it's fantastic. So for the few uh, people who tune into the podcast for just hearing about the whiskey, uh, let me just sort of explain <laughs> what we're drinking here. So Glen Morangie is a distillery in Scotland, and they have their sort of famous their ten year original. Uh, now their ten year original actually takes quote unquote twenty years to make. Here's how that works. So what they do is when they distill the spirit, they put it into a cask for 10 years. They take that cask, so that was a first fill cask, and then they refill it. So now it becomes a second fill cask, and they distill a new spirit for another 10 years. So technically, yes, it's a 10-year, but the first batch took really 20 years to make, if you think of it that way, because they mix, uh, I think in 50-50 proportion, the first cask fill and the second fill cask together and then you get the 10-year original then what they'll do sometimes is they'll take that 10-year original they'll make these different bottles and this is one of those bottles so they they finish that 10-year original in port casks so depending on what the casks were originally used to sort of age can sort of change the flavor so what we're drinking is a beautiful color you can't see on the podcast but it is a gorgeous colored um scotch so it's the 10-year glen morangy finished for another two years in this port cask and it's absolutely delicious it's very good anyways um <laughs> we can follow that with beer if you like um <laughs> so anyways cheers to scott thank you for bringing the bottle yeah let me say something about scott that's you you probably don't know this but i uh when i have some of my institutional clients in toronto um so these might be you know big pension funds or hedge funds or 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 whatever um they love talking to Scott. He's one of the most articulate people in the space. Yeah. And I think the point that he made in that recent McLean's article is so underappreciated in Canada, which is just that uh, internationally, there's this view, and even somebody, even here in Canada as well, there's this view that um, mortgage debt follows you forever, right? right? Even post-bankruptcy, right? Which is really not true. And I don't know if Scott got into some of the, the nitty gritty of it, um, but you know, in Canada, there's a scenario where someone, if you end up with a $500,000 shortfall on a mortgage and, and you're unemployed, um, you can declare bankruptcy. Uh, and if there's no surplus income, nine months later, it's fully discharged, $1,500 admin fee. Yeah, you're walking like, away I'm from you, Nobody knows that. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah, right? and, and you're right. Yes, we, we did talk about that on the podcast specifically um, about this this idea about jingle mail. Um, and how people thought, well, maybe in Alberta it happens mm-hmm. occasionally, but everywhere else, no, it's totally different. That's right. why it's different in Canada. It turns out, no, actually, it's not. Well, and what's interesting is if you look internationally, um, you look at countries like Spain or Ireland. Ireland's a great example. Ireland has much more stringent recourse laws than than we do. Right. Um, and you look at what happened in their financial crisis. Right. It just it just doesn't matter. I mean, the empirical data on this front's quite clear mm-hmm. that you just you can't squeeze blood from a stone, right? right? And the U.S. is a great example because there's a number of, of, of U.S. states that are um, 
that are uh, recourse and then non-recourse states. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the delinquency rate, the difference between recourse and non-recourse states, is it's negligible, right? So it just it doesn't matter. It's a secondary factor when you get into a really stressed economic climate, which thankfully we haven't had in Canada. But for the people who are saying, well, it's different here, we can never have a housing downturn because of recourse, that's just the wrong way to think about it. You, you know, there, there's valid arguments why we might not have a, a, a major real estate downturn, but that's just not one of them. So basically what you're saying here on the record is that there's going to be a major market meltdown starting next week. Oh yeah. In Bitcoin, maybe. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Oh God. Don't get me started on Bitcoin. Um, I think I talked about this with Scott too, but everywhere you go, people are talking about Bitcoin. And our only advice to anyone listening out there is get uh, HELOC as big Mm -hmm. as you can and put Mm -hmm. all of it into Bitcoin. No, no, no. Bitcoin futures. Bitcoin futures. Leverage on leverage (laughs) is the way you make money. I read that in a book once. Just to be clear to everyone who's listening, (laughs) do not do that. Do not do that. We are totally joking. Um, Okay. So let's, let's get into um, some, some topical items of, um, you know, credit in real estate and what's going on. And it is really uh, still a national pastime for a lot of people is talking mm-hmm. about housing. So let's start with this idea. You um, mentioned to me offline that uh, Canadian consumers will finally hit the bricks. So what do, you, what do you mean by that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, so we are in a um, period here in Canada where um, household spending has driven a disproportionate share of GDP growth. Right. And we saw it even last quarter. Um, you know, big, big beat in uh, household final consumption expenditures. Now, when you start to look at the sort of inputs that drive consumer spending, um, part of it is confidence based and then part of it's kind of access to credit. And then right. part is like organic income growth. Mm-hmm. So if you look at those three components, um, you could make the case that 2018 is going to be a challenging environment for consumers in Canada because uh, we've got new regulatory changes coming down the pipeline. Yeah, in, we'll get into B20. that. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll look at that in more detail. But I would say there's sort of three things to consider. One is that you've got um, you've got uh, a slowdown in house price appreciation. Right. So you know, still positive nationally, but down from the peaks. So if you look at how much the average homeowner can pull out of their house in, in terms of equity, um, it's down sharply from what it was even last year at this time. And that's it's it's a big amount. If we look nationally, uh, it's almost fifty billion dollars a year. Uh, is withdrawn from housing equity in a two trillion dollar economy. That's a big deal, right? Right, and so you know, part of that goes to um, to uh, fund consumption directly. So some people literally pull off a, a HELOC to you know fund a vacation or or buy a boat or whatever. Uh, but I think more importantly, what it does for for uh, for more people is it is it allows room to consolidate higher interest debt and provide more cash flow. Right. right. And so one of the things we hear often, I mean, Scott would have, would have told you some horror stories, but people who run up credit card debt roll it into their mortgage, right? Rinse, repeat, a couple years later, the back. Yep. Uh, and 
I'll just tell you that that dynamic of slowing price appreciation and these new B20 rules, which are going to force borrowers to stress test, if they want to refinance, they have to stress test against a much higher rate. It is going to be like hitting a wall for right, refis. Because really what's happened in the last little while is that people who have been spending beyond their means yep. and racking up these debts on their credit cards, because house prices have been appreciating so much and credit is relatively loose, mm-hmm. they can just sort of get away with that and that behavior will continue because the system has allowed them to do that. Yeah. I mean, Scott's the perfect guy to talk to about that because right. he sees that. Every, I mean, he'd tell you, we've you know they see people that should have filed years ago and yet they're able to go out and get another unsecured line or roll their debt into into housing equity. And yeah, and so a point I kind of want to um, ask you about here. So yeah, certainly when, when I was talking to Scott, we we're talking about people who see him or are on the verge of seeing him or should be seeing him. And those are people who are right at the end of their, yeah. their, their rope. But this also occurs with people who, you know, uh, make good money. Um, they may not be close to bankruptcy, but it's still bad behavior, right? It's not prudent personal right. financial behavior to do this, and they've gotten away with it. And they may not get caught out if there is a downturn. Um, they might get, you know, a bit of a squeeze, but they may not claim bankruptcy. But that's not necessarily a great thing because it's going to put the brakes on consumer spending because they're not going to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to be smarter with how I manage my money. It's because now they can't. Right, they can't continue doing right. that because they no longer have access to the credit, which has been uh, because of these variables that we talked about. Right. So I would say that the people who are in that kind of higher income bracket, um, and when you talk to insolvency trustees, that's one of the striking trend that you hear is that you know, ten years ago, the people coming into their office and filing insolvencies generally, it's like a life situation, life circumstance that happened, yeah, or it's sort of, of the events. people that are just massively over indebted and you know, lower paying and just, you know, expenses just couldn't keep up with income sort of thing or vice versa, I guess. Um, And now they're seeing a lot more, to your point, just a lot more kind of dual income, good uh, good jobs, um, but just a ton of debt. Now, those people might be all right um, because, you know, the the B20 rules uh, are really going to pinch the people who are at the high end of the debt service ratio spectrum. Right. Which tend to be, I mean, for those people that are kind of, professional dual income or whatever you get have a lot of unsecured debt before right. that really starts to matter but you know at the end of the day on aggregate like an aggregate when you look at what it's going to mean it's just going to mean less uh credit less ex- less uh home equity withdrawal mm-hmm. um and that's a that's going to be a big change the other thing that we didn't talk about is just that we're into a different regime uh with with rates yeah. um and i know it's a big topic you want to discuss but i guess just briefly um I submitted a chart from McLean's to do this annual, you know, charts to watch. And did you put one in for that? I uh, they asked me to. I I was so busy <laughs> I couldn't get to it. Okay. Yeah, I well, really wanted to, but well, you should have done one on Bitcoin. That would be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I put one in, and it was just looking at um, the change in monthly mortgage payments per hundred thousand dollars borrowed at first renewal, which right. I know is I know is a lot, but the, the point there is just. Uh, if you take out a mortgage for $100,000, five years later at renewal, what's going to happen to your monthly payment? And we know that rates have generally been going down for, for almost 30 years. Right. Right. And so you see that like every, every, on a rolling basis, people who borrowed five years ago, when it comes up for renewal, their payments drop, their payments drop. For 25 years, that's been the trend. Mm-hmm. And then starting this summer, we saw that it finally flipped. So rates have been so low for so long. And then you had this little bit of an uptick. And all of a sudden, that puts people who borrowed five years ago who are coming back for renewal. All of a sudden, they're renewing at a higher interest rate. And that's a very new dynamic. And I think, you know, when you get into something that could 
uh, pressure consumer spending broadly. That's that's a big one. And this is not like a, a small deal, right? I mean, we're talking yeah. about consumer spending being um, over 70% of real GDP growth over the last five years. It's been a big driver. Yeah. And um, uh, I think you're absolutely right that we need to sort of take a, a real close look on this because if there's an increase in rates, um, and even if it is a moderate, slow, progressive increase, we're still switching from an environment where people, again, they were given more rope with which to sort mm-hmm. of hang themselves with. And now that tide is changing. Um, and an increase of 50, 100 bucks, 200 bucks per month, that's a big deal. Absolutely. Right. Cause that, again, it's the reversal here that's really important. So, um, so with that being the case and the consumer spending seem, being such an important part of the economy, um, is it possible that you see a scenario where there's no collapse in housing, but there's a real stagnation for the economy? Maybe that tips the economy into a recession, which then leads to a housing market downturn. What If you had a crystal ball, you yep. know, what do you think is, uh, is on the horizon? Sure. Here? Well, you know how well my crystal ball works, so I'll, I'll caveat <laughs> yes. that. Uh, so look, I would say um, uh, with the, the whole consumer spending thing, I think it's, a, it's one of my highest conviction views that we're going to see uh, quite weak consumer spending. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll say that um, I think we're also going to see very strong wage growth in the first half of the year, which I know would sort of seem to argue against this thesis, but due but to what? You, what, what? Well, if you look this? at, so I know you've got the, the data in front of you. So, yeah. so for the listeners, Preet's got my latest uh, note for my clients, which is just kind of 2018 outlook and some of the key key themes that, that, that our team's watching. Uh, and one of them is, is um, this idea that the Bank of Canada is probably going to hike in Q1, but that when we get to the back half of the year, they're going to they're going to probably end up quite dovish. Now, one of the reasons I think they're going to hike, and one of the reasons I think wage growth is going to come in fairly hot, is if you look at uh, so there's two things. One is if you look at the number of job vacancies right now, uh, it's a record high. So a record number of firms are reporting an inability to hire staff. Okay. Now, now along the same lines. Um, those same surveys where they look at the percentage of firms uh, that cite a shortage of skilled and unskilled labor, it's at an all-time high as a share of all firms. Mm-hmm. So those trends, usually you see that just in advance of, of a sharp uptick in wages. Um, and so I think that's coming. I think that people will generally be surprised at the strength of, of, of wage growth in the first half of 2018. Now, that would seem to, you know, when you hear that and you hear somebody saying, well, I think consumer spending is going to be weak, that, that doesn't seem to reconcile. The issue is um, if the Bank of Canada moves again and, and the market right now is kind of pricing in just a little over two hikes, and I think that's probably the right way to think about it, um, then it negates it, right? It ends up being, if you look at it from a discretionary income perspective, it, it, there's no net gain, right? right? Now, um, what I would say is, if the Bank of Canada sits on the sidelines, so if something goes really sideways with NAFTA, or if you know Trump drops a nuke on North Korea, or God knows what, and the Bank of Canada goes, uh, "All right, we're going to sit on the sidelines for a while, and we still get that strong income growth," right? Then you know, then you walk back your expectations for for that weak consumption, right? It's a it's a bit of a of a moderating factor. But even if we have that strong wage growth, you still have the this this effect of um, you know a major tightening from OSFI. Right. Which is going to limit credit availability. And so I still think it could end up being a you know, pretty challenging environment for those retailers. Okay, let me let me pause you for a second. Mm-hmm. So for our, our um, newer listeners, perhaps, um, let's break down some terminology. Just, sure. Just so um, we're not leaving anyone uh, uh, behind with uh, with jargon. So you mentioned, um, I think, dovish in the second half of 
uh, of the year. Um, you want to explain just very quickly sure. the difference between hawkish and dovish when we talk about central banking? Sure, sure. So the idea there is um, dovish would imply a kind of loosening bias, which means that they'd be more prone to either leave rates the same or or cut them. Right. Um, and, and a hawkish perspective would mean they're more inclined to raise rates. Right. Uh, and so right now... Um, the bank is trying to convince the markets that they're neutral on their outlook and and on their and on their bias, but I think everybody reads through that and sees that there's a, there's a hawkish bias here right now. Mm-hmm. They're 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 prone to tighten. They want to tighten, uh, which means they want to raise rates. Right. Um, but if we end up with a scenario where the economy is a little weaker in the back half as a result of a you know, consumer slowdown and and maybe some weakness in the housing sector, uh, it's going to put the bank on hold. Right. And especially if you get any weakness in NAFTA. Right. right now, and, and one of the things that the uh, the Bank of Canada is always talking about is that they're always worried about the level of indebtedness of Canadian households, and if they don't watch themselves and rates go up, and that causes problems, then doesn't that kind of um, handcuff the central bank mm-hmm. in terms of what they can do? Like, if they wanted to raise rates, and at the same time, raising rates is what would cause a, a downturn. Um, what? Uh, <laughs> I guess that's the challenge. But what what is the Bank of Canada? Uh, do you have any insight into how they would handle that? Like, do they consider the the household, or what are they looking they at? They absolutely consider the household. So, if you read any of the monetary policy reports, um, they they emphasize tremendously where the risks are. Yeah, and that's that's their job as a central bank. Is now their main mandate is to control inflation. Yeah, right. But but inflation often can be a function of well, we won't get into that. It's too much. For this conversation, it, it, it's probably a little too deep for, right. for but let's just say that, um, that, that factoring into inflation is all sorts of other inputs such as demographics and, 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 and possible debt deleveraging dynamics. And, uh, and so they consider all of those and, and as well as any kind of exogenous shock to the economy. And so one of the things they've pointed out and have been very clear on is that the economy is much more sensitive to interest rate increases than it was in the past. Right. Which is code for the central banks to mean, um, they're going to proceed very cautiously, right? Right, and it was funny like, on the last uh, uh, monetary policy report um, during the Scrum, you know, the reporter Scrum. They're kind of asking, "Well, what do you mean by cautiously?" And the letter is like, "Well, it means what it means in the dictionary." So we're <laughs> going to be cautious, right? Because people are always—it's funny. Like people who watch central banks are always like trying to, you know, parse the words. And, oh like, yeah, try they to do like a out, differential like, analysis, yeah, word yeah, for it's word. Incredible, yeah. right? And, and and I think some of these central bankers, like Polos, they're just they're they're kind of just you know sick of that. And they're like, "Well, no, it literally just means we're going to be cautious." Right. right, which means we're gonna you know we're gonna hike and then we're gonna wait and see what happens yeah. and then we might hike and so I think that's 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 how they're thinking about it. But it's gonna be a balancing act, right? And and you know when I was on the podcast last time, I said um, I think interest rates or I think sorry I think mortgage rates have probably bottomed, right? But I wouldn't be surprised if the Bank of Canada cut again, yeah, right. And so you know half right uh, here we are. The bank well, they has cut, cut twice since then. I think since you were on last. Uh, okay, think. we'll go with that. We'll go. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're totally right, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> um, but you know what? It's um, I think we're at a point now where the data is very clear that the economy is running quite hot, mm-hmm. uh, and um, there's what's really the reason no- for that? There, I know there's a lot of government spending, right? Is that part of it? Is it well, also the household? Because- there's a lot of consumer spending. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the big beats from the last couple quarters that have really driven um, sentiment. Um, and, and really driven markets to price in a, a, a tightening bias. It's been these big GDP brands from the last couple of quarters. And uh, by and large, it's been a consumer spending story. And uh, and before I ask you about B20 and explain what the B20 rules are that you've mentioned a couple of times, how do you think Polos is doing? 
stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As a central banker, you know, I think he's doing, I think he's doing no, a good job. No, as a human being, like, is he a good father? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, of course, as a central banker. <laughs> You know, I think he's got a challenging job. I think it's, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it's, it's a situation where um, if we go back a year and a half ago, you had an economy where uh, in Ontario it was, it was humming and in BC it was, it was humming. But in the uh, resource regions, it was a, it was a real disaster. Right. So how do you, as a, as a central banker, how do you manage all that? Yeah. Right? It's not an easy task, right? And so now he's trying to get to a point where we've got a bit more synchronized growth. I think things in Alberta... Um, I think I know most forecasts have, you know, really strong GDP growth, in some cases 4% for next year. I think that's, I think that's really high. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still see a lot of issues they have to work through in Alberta uh, that are more structural in nature. Um, but all that to say, we've got more synchronized growth and, uh, he's at the point now where he's got to kind of embark on this tightening. So I think given the, the hand he was dealt, he's, he's playing it well. All right. So now let's go to B20. So you mentioned this a couple of times, I think. Um, I don't know if we mentioned it or not on uh, on the podcast with Scott, um, but let's walk through what is what do you talk about uh, or what do you mean when you when you mention the word the B twenty regulations? Sure. So um, OSFI, which is the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, so they are the regulator for any uh, federally regulated deposit taking institution. So right. think of the big banks. It's the easiest way to think about that, uh, and they set policy. Um, that would that governs how the bank should lend right. across various credit products, and and with a lot of emphasis on consumer products, so mortgages, HELOCs, home equity lines of credit, etc. Um, now, one of the things that we saw, if you go back to 2016, um, the the Feds brought in some rules that tightened the uh, the mortgage underwriting for insured mortgages. Right. Um, so you'd have to get yeah, the stress test. Yes. And. What it created was this incentive for people to get to 20% down so they could bypass the stress test and get an insur- an uninsured mortgage. And the stress right. test was? Well, it, it meant that you had to qualify at a much higher interest rate. So even though your contract interest rate might be, just to use a round number, it might be 3%. Yep. Um, they said, we want to make sure that there's enough wiggle room in your budget that you can absorb higher rates. And so we'll, 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 for the purpose of qualifying you, we'll use 5% and, and test your debt service ratios against that 5%. Now that only applied to insured mortgages. Right. So, so you can see 20% the loophole. down or less or less right. than 20%, less than 20% down. down and you need, you need insurance. Uh, and so it created this strange system where as soon as you got to 20% down, you got 40% more mortgage. Right. And so at the time, you could kind of, I mean, it's funny, back in October 2016 when it was announced, I put out a note to clients saying, you know, on the surface is a big deal. Um, here are the ways that this could be circumvented. 
And did that include borrowing money so that you have a absolutely, bigger down payment? Absolutely. And that was one of the things we highlighted is you're going to see a big surge in what we call co-lending. Yeah. Uh, where you have a, a bank lend up to 80% and then some sort of you know private lender or whatever come in, top it up to 90%. Uh, and as soon as you do that, you end up with, you, know, you bypass the insurance requirements, you get a much bigger mortgage. So we we flagged all of these for our clients, but I had no idea the extent to which that loophole would be exploited. <laughs> and, right. and to frame it for you, if you look at the latest data from OSFI, which is, so they have monthly balance sheet filings from the big banks, what you find is the insured mortgages on banks balance sheets are declining at a 5% year over year clip. They're really? actually declining. Really? Never happened before. Wow. Right? And the uninsured mortgages are growing 18% year over year. Okay. So the B20 changes basically say that stress test, which originally was just for the insured mortgages with down payments of less than 20% now applies to all mortgages. All mortgages granted by federally regulated entities. Right. Yes. Correct. Important so distinction. It, uh, it is in theory. Um, so there's there, there's a lot less wiggle room, a lot less l- loopholes available there. Um, some people have pointed out that you could go to a non federally regulated entity like a like a, a credit union. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's going to be a huge workaround for a few reasons. One, I just I, they're they're somewhat capital constrained. They just can't they can't absorb that much volume. Right. Um, but then also, I think the provincial regulators uh, may come on board as well and kind of lean on them. Okay. Um, but I'll tell you, you will see a big boom in private lending, which I know is a topic you may want to yes. <laughs> you may want to get to at some point. So I think they'll be the big winners in all of this. But it's still it's going to be insufficient to to offset this this uh, this credit tightening. It's just there's no easy workaround to this rule. So I think it'll be um, you know it's going to be a real headwind for the housing market at a time where, frankly, in Toronto, as we know, there's there's some real problems, especially when you get it in the nine five. So would it be fair to say that the era of loose and cheap credit is starting to come to an end? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So now you mentioned private lending. So what is private lending in a nutshell? Sure. So this is a form of lending that's gaining a lot of popularity in Canada. It's, it's seeing some pretty massive growth, still relatively small as an overall share, uh, but seeing huge growth. And right. so what this is, is um, you know, it takes several forms, but, but it's uh, a loan from a much less regulated entity. Uh, and that could be uh, literally it could be an individual. Mm-hmm. So I could literally lend to you. I go on title. I'm your, I'm your borrower. I'm your bank. Right. Uh, and my name is actually on title uh, as a mortgagee. Um, and that's one form. And then it can also happen more through what we call mortgage investment corporations, which mm-hmm. tend to raise capital from um, investors. And then they lend to these kind of credit impaired individuals um, that kind of fall outside of the traditional banking space. So I could be a guy who has a bunch of GICs. I'm like, man, these interest rates I'm getting are pathetic. I want to find a little bit more juice. So I will seek out maybe someone who runs a mortgage investment corporation and say, here, here's all the money I had in my GICs. Get me a better rate. That mortgage investment corporation turns around and finds people who have trouble borrowing money from, say, a big five bank and gets them uh, you know, a higher interest rate on their mortgage and presumably a higher rate of default. So there's higher risk, higher yep. return. Okay. Yep, absolutely. And then so that that's right. And then you would pocket that 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 difference. So yeah, the rates are are pretty steep in some cases. I mean, if you're looking at a first mortgage from a private lender, it can be anywhere from at the very low end six percent, mm-hmm. um, typically plus fees. And the fees on these can are often you know two or three percent. Really? Uh, oh yeah, that's amazing. So so this is the issue with private lending. And one of one of the one of the real concerns I've had for a long time is um, there's the rate. Which is which is steep enough, but they're interest only, 
right? So a 10% mortgage, uh, you're only paying the interest on, there's no amortization, uh, which is part of their popularity. Right. But then embedded behind that 10% interest rate is all sorts of additional fees. And they can run, I mean, they, it's not uncommon to see 10% interest rate and then another four or 5% in fees embedded within really? it. And they're all one year mortgages. Right. right? So, so the, the effective rate ends up being like often 15% or north of that. So are they all interest only or are they all, are some of they're them principal and Overwhelmingly interest only. Okay. Yeah. That's right. It just makes it easier for the accounting. Now, is there a bit of a risk if, um, if they're all for short terms, like a year or whatever, um, that, uh, you know, the people that take out these, these, uh, private mortgages, um, let's say there's some kind of event and everyone says, all right, that's it. We're pulling our hands off the, off the table here. How do these people refinance? Like, and what risk does that create? <laughs> well, you know my answer on this. So this has been an issue of mine for a while. And this has been a real concern of mine. So anytime you have a situation where you, um, you have very short duration mortgages. So in this case, one year. Yeah. And the funding structure behind that is very flighty capital. Yeah. So in other words, the, the, the situation you described with the GIC investor looking for higher yield, perfect analogy. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the people that are funding these mortgages tend to be kind of mom and pop investors just looking for a bit more yield. Right. And and often of the view, this is very uh, low risk yield, which is, you and I both know that risk and reward. Yeah. Are, Can't get around are, that. Right. So so these are these are by by nature, these are higher risk loans. Now they've performed exceptionally well because you've been in a in a strong upwards market with a very strong economy behind it. So really, no one's defaulting, right? Um, but but to your point, the concern would be okay. So you've got this pool of capital financing these one year loans. What happens if the investors behind those are like, all right, you know, I th- I think I'd like my money back now, and, I, and maybe I'll move over over here. I see better investment opportunity or whatever. Then that pool of capital actually shrinks and, and it means that some people won't be able to renew those mortgages. So if you follow through what that actually looks like, it means that that the the lender, or the private mortgage lender, will go power of sale. They'll actually, if they if you can't find another uh, lender to, to, to finance them out, they'll come in and they'll actually take your house and sell it. Right. Right. So, so it introduces a lot of risk um, in the market. It, it's a, it's a highly unstable and, and very opaque part of the market. Um, and you know, I think it's one that uh, regulators are going to increasingly be be looking at. Okay. Um, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, oh, actually, no. Before I get to that, I don't want to switch gears. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, mortgage fraud. <laughs> um, and the reason I, I I bring this up is I've seen a number of headlines um, in various newspapers that have talked about. Um, oh, hey, uh, it looks like some people are, are lying about how much money they earn, and there's not been the verification that you would normally expect in a handful of cases. Um, do you think that um, this is maybe a bit more rampant than the average person might suspect? I do. I do. I, I've, I've, I've been saying this for a few years. I mean, if you go back to, I think it was 2014, I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. This is way before the whole home capital thing blew up earlier this right. year. Right, yeah. Um, way before, or I should say earlier this year. It was disclosed in 2015, <laughs> yeah. but it, it blew up this year. Yeah. Um, and it was before the whole Laurentian thing came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I was saying at the time, if you, if you look at the, the way that mortgages are set up in Canada, it's a funny system where you have, um, the banks are able to pass the risk on to, to, to the insurers, mm-hmm. right? So as long as the, the loan is being insured, um, they bear no risk, which is yeah. a strange scenario. And, and it's one that I've often argued, like it's hard to find an insurance scheme anywhere where you don't pay a deductible, right? 
because the whole concept is there. You, you need some skin in the game. Yeah. Right. So you shouldn't be able to just trash your car and drive like an idiot and, and the insurer just covers it and there's no repercussions for you. The idea is they want to make sure that you have skin in the game. Right. Right. But we have this situation in Canada where the insurers take on all the risk. And, and so consequently, um, yeah, the lenders are able to, to, in some cases, turn a blind eye to some of this stuff. Yeah. Cause what and, do they care? <clears throat> well, that's just it. So you've divorced the risk from the actual lending. And to me, that's a problem. So if all you know is that, um, the, the risk has been divorced from the lending. And, and if you know that the people originating the mortgage are volume compensated. And then if you further do some digging on the insurers themselves and see how they've handled previous. So, so for example, I mean, you haven't seen this, but I put a note out to my client. We got, we, we got some documents from CMHC. Actually, it was through a, through another uh, research who had done a freedom of information search yeah. around how CMHC, which is the, the Crown Corporation, one of the big insurers, how they handled the whole home capital fraud fiasco. Mm-hmm. This will blow your mind. So, in this freedom of information dump, we saw that um, that the uh, somebody senior at Home Trust, which is a lending subsidiary, the, home, the trust company at Home Capital, um, notified CMHC, I think late 2014, that they had discovered fraud. Okay, and there's this like little kind of internal memo. Yeah, we you know we thank them for coming forward, and and that's kind of it. <laughs> All right, and then and then so as a, as as any rational person kind of looking at this, you would think, All right, if I was an insurer, my first question would be. What's the size of the fraud? Uh, are these brokers who are originally, are they sending it through any other lenders? Like, do we have, do we have potential exposure through other lenders anywhere? Like all these sort of questions, right? And should we be cutting them off? Like simple, like, basic questions simple, that basic any risk questions. manager would look at. You would yeah. think, right? Nothing. So at least not <laughs> from anything we saw on the freedom of information. Right. Dump right. that we got. You fast forward seven or eight months. It gets disclosed publicly from home capital. The media goes nuts. And then all of a sudden you see these frantic emails going around Mm -hmm. senior at CMHC going, maybe we should ask for the names of the people involved. Like, I'm not kidding you, man. That's literally, there's an email going, should we ask for the names of the people who are original? Like like this is, this is eight months later. Right. Right. And, 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 and still they have no concept of the size of it. Right. right. And so then you got to fast forward. Like it's hilarious. These, 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 these documents, like they're showing that, you know, almost a year after they were informed from home trust, they're still getting their information from like the Globe and Mail and like mortgage broker news. Like, like literally you can't make this up. Like, oh, hey, there's, there's actual emails where there's like, oh, hey, uh, did you see this, this article from Globe and Mail? It's kind oh. of interesting. I'm not making this. This is unbelievable, right? Yeah. And then so, um, there's even one. This is the best. There's one from somebody who's senior in credit adjudication to somebody senior at home trust. Uh, and it's like, hey man, can we get together for a coffee and discuss this? I just kind of want to like understand what went down. And like, to me reading this, I'm like, man, shouldn't this be more like, get your ass yeah. in my office, bring your lawyer, yeah. right? And we got to <laughs> figure this out, right? Like to me, that should be the relationship here. Like right. you've transferred the risk from the lender onto the taxpayers yeah. and you're so far behind the eight ball on this fraud disclosure. Yeah. So, so when you put all these pieces together, like, why wouldn't there be an issue with, with document fraud in Canada? Right. The lenders, I'll, I'll give you a crazy example. So a good friend of mine, uh, who I won't name here, just because this is, you know, he's past this long confidence, but I'm sure he's okay if I just kind of throw <laughs> this story out there without his name attached to it. Uh, mortgage broker in, in, in Ontario. And he had a deal, it's going back a few years ago, where he had three brothers come in, um, all uh, fairly new, uh, new immigrants, um, all self-employed. So I, I, can't, I can't recall if they owned... A store or some sort of business, or but all self-employed. So clearly, these are not uh, the sort of 
borrowers that would fit into that kind of traditional insured box. They would be uninsured, kind of like a home, like a home capital type thing, right? And so that would mean that they would be paying slightly higher rates and they would have to make a larger down payment. So he explains this to them. He gets all the paperwork ready and prepares the file, sends it off. Uh, so he's got a lot of time sunk into this. And then they come back and say, ah, you know, we, uh, we're going to go with a different broker. He's like, okay, well, that's kind of suspicious. So he right. does a bit of digging, finds out that they all bought these homes, all three of them, all with 95% financing. He's like, that's impossible mm-hmm. because they don't even qualify for the insurance. So at this point, he's kind of he's kind of pissed because he's invested a lot of time in this. Sure. And he knows that fraud has happened. And so he's able through a bit of sleuthing to figure out, you know, who who the who the the broker was and who the the lender is. So he calls um, the, 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 the business development manager at that lender and says, you guys have just originated a loan. It's fraudulent. I've got all the paperwork here that proves that this is a fraudulent. Oh, yeah. Cause there's no way they should have qualified for insurance. Oh, boy, yeah. The bank, this is crazy. The bank goes, ah, listen, man, that's an insured mortgage. We can't, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to reopen that. Oh. So he goes, okay, no problem. Calls the insurer and the insurer goes, well, we can't open a, file unless there's there's a claim made against it unless they something goes delinquent what yeah no i'm not making this up so then he goes <laughs> he's kind of pissed at this point he's like well all right i'll call i'll call fisco which is the <laughs> entity that regulates more and yeah. i'll report this mortgage broker and yeah. like, maybe they'll get involved calls fisco and fisco's like well there's been no damages we can't investigate there's no one's been damaged oh my god and so and so that's like this big circle where everybody's waiting for the other person to act right, right? And, you know, that's, that's the regulatory apparatus. I hate to say it, but that's the regulatory apparatus in Canada. So, you know, given that, of course, there's going to be fraud. Now, I, I can't speak to how, how pervasive it is, but I'll tell you it's more pervasive than the average listener would want to believe. And there was a recent article in the Globe and Mail. They did an investigation on the regulatory environment of white collar crime and whatnot. You know my views on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, suggest to listeners, you might want to check that out. Do you remember the names of the authors? Uh, that one I, I I don't, but it's 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 true. It's it's a white collar crime in Canada. There's it really lacks. Yeah. So oh, I'll, t- I'll I'll give you a great example just to back up to the whole mortgage fraud story. And I don't mean to throw Laurentian Bank under the bus by any means, but but what the CEO said on BNN is super telling. And I'd invite your listeners to look up this interview with the CEO of of Laurentian Bank on BNN. This would have been about two weeks ago, so call it you know early what are you, early December. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so this is right after they disclosed that they had found some what they call irregularities, okay, <laughs> which is code in the industry for mortgage fraud, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and what's amazing is is he gets on uh, BNN and he says, uh, "Yeah, we found these irregularities." And I know it sounds really bad, but what it is is it's actually where people like they say that they that, that they make seventy thousand or sixty, but they really only make sixty. So like this, is how, this, is how he's, this is how he's framing. He's like, well, I know it sounds bad, but it's really just people like lying about their income. No, that really is bad. Right, right. I know. You and I understand that. And, and what's hilarious is in is in Canada, we have a term for that where we call it either soft fraud or we call it fraud for shelter. Do you know what they call it in any other country? Fraud. It's fraud. Right? So, so this, is, this drives me nuts. Like, what the hell is soft fraud? Right. Right. But this is what we call it. It's like, well, it's, yeah, no one, yeah, we lied to, to get into our house, but really, we really like the house. We want to live there. So it's, ah, it's like yeah, a white lie. Right. Yeah. Right. No so biggie. this is, this is the mentality. And even the lenders themselves are like, yeah, it sounds like a big deal, but it's really just people lying oh, about their income. So that's for your listeners. Like, that is the perspective. In Canada, so I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to like make it out to be. <laughs> I'm not saying it's like you know half of all mortgage originations, right, but yeah. it's, it's a bigger issue than people realize. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's now change gears to um, 
the challenging environment for banks. So banks make their money in a, in a variety of ways. They've got a different lines of business. Um, but you recently wrote um, to your clients about why there's a challenge for the EPS, the earnings per share for banks. And what is that challenge? Sure. So there's a couple things that play into that. Um, one is just that you're going to see originations. I think you're going to see mortgage credit growth continue to slow. It's already started to roll over kind of mid-year. Right. Um, and I think that's a trend that's going to continue. I think these B20 rules, which are going to force this, this stress test, are going to take a lot of tail, uh, a lot of tailwind out of the market. And you'll see credit growth slow. But more importantly, um, we know that credit performance has been exceptional, right? People just aren't, aren't defaulting in any way. And, and, uh, that's true across all sorts of consumer credit products, including credit cards. Right. One of the things I think is going to happen with B20 is you'll you'll start to see that some of those serial refinancers who now have to stress test gets a much higher rate yeah. won't have the ability to roll that high interest credit card debt into their mortgage. Um, and you'll start to see, I think, a normalization in the arrears rate there, which is not to say that you're going to see like, you know, a U.S. style blowout in arrears. But at this point in the economic cycle, there's sort of a place where... Um, arrears should be in sort of a normal expansion. And we're way below that. We're right. way below across virtually all credit products. And so it begs the question, like, why Why is that? Like, are, is, are things really fundamentally different? Or is there something else at play that's allowing people to, who otherwise might declare some sort of insolvency, to, to, to stay afloat? One interesting uh, observation from another insolvency trustee in the space, so Doug Hoyes, I don't know, if you ever chat with him, he's a, he's a super knowledgeable, really nice guy. Just no, like yeah, same, follow him same, on Twitter. Same, right. So yeah. same, same business line as Scott. Um, and he's got this great index where he actually charts the percentage of their um, clients, so the people coming in to file insolvency, the percentage of those people who also own a home. Right. It's yes. very interesting. Yes. So, yes. so in a normal environment, they find that it's normally kind of between 25 and 35%. So call it a third of their, their people. Um, are homeowners. Now, in the last couple of years, as prices have gone kind of parabolic, that number's plunged all the way to a low of 6%. Wow, really? Yeah. But here's what's very interesting is since the spring, when prices started to flatline in Ontario, and we'll use that term generously, and if you're in the downtown core, they're still, they're up, but but in a lot of other parts of Ontario, they're, they're pretty weak. Yeah. And that little bit of flattening in house prices and that reduced ability to roll some of that credit that number has has kind of bounced off that bottom. Uh, and I think it hit 12% mm-hmm. in a recent reading. So it's like basically straight line down to 6%, house prices flat, and it, 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 it spikes back up. And so um, when you think about that in the context of the banks, you've got sort of a challenging EPS environment in terms of having to start to recognize uh, more. There's also IFRS 9, which we don't have to get into, yeah, but no. the accounting rules, it forces the banks to recognize losses a little earlier. Um and so you boil all that down. And then, and then the third thing that I'd say is um, if you look at the composition of business loan growth at the big banks, it's skewed so heavily to real estate industries. Right. Like it's incredible. So it's, uh, you know, about 84% of the year over year growth, according to, to one Stats Canada um, series that I, I track, 84% of the loan growth at, at domestic banks in the business sect- sector uh, have been construction, finance or insurance. Or real estate services, right. which collectively are all, you know, they're not pure housing, but they're Related. kind of proxy, right? They're proxy industries for housing. And so if you're of the view that, um, you know, we may be seeing the point where housing has a few more headwinds, then that's that's going to be challenging to see that longer. I mean, you see the charts at how, you know, how construction loans 
have, have grown at the big banks and how real estate industry loans. I mean, it's incredible. It's, you're like talking, clockwork too. Yeah, you're talking about almost 50% nominal loan growth over the last few years. I think over the last four years, I think it is. And and um, uh, just sort of, I guess, uh, switching a little bit into the world of investing, um, if you take a look at the Canadian economy, one of the um, criticisms of the TSX as an index is that 75% of it is basically three sectors, energy, materials, and finance. Mm-hmm. It's even worse if you look at the earnings breakdown. And and further to that, if you take a look at financials itself, which is a huge component mm-hmm. of the TSX, a lot of financials are now geared towards real estate because of the growth here. Right. Um, so something to be uh, cognizant. It's almost of half. Us. So you're right. So it's so the financials are, and I'd have to get the exact numbers. But the financials are about a third of the market cap, I think. Yeah. But in terms of earnings, like the actual earnings of, of, of TSX companies, it's I think it's pushing half. Yeah, I don't know what the exact number is, but and a lot of those earnings have been more disproportionately growing or or shifting over to um, residential con- uh, construction, real estate, all that stuff. So um, okay. Let's now talk about, um, because we're coming up on the 45-minute mark, um, let's talk about Toronto versus Vancouver. Sure. So we saw in Vancouver there was uh, a raft of regulations brought in designed to try and cool the market. Mm -hmm. There was a bit of a pause, and then it kind of bounced back. For the most part. It's a little more nuanced than that. But do you want to start with maybe just an overview of kind of what's happening in Vancouver and Toronto? Okay, let's start there. So you're right. It's um, if you look at Vancouver, they brought in some regulations, uh, 2016, um, and it took a lot of steam out of particularly the single family market. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what we find today is so. First of all, one important note is when sales slumped in Vancouver, new listings fell through the floor. Right, which is really important to note because what it showed is that when the sales got weak. Um, people just pulled their homes off the market. They refused to list. And it, 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 consequently, you didn't have this huge build in inventory. Right. And so the markets, uh, never really got crazy out of balance, even though sales had fallen significantly. Okay. Um, now since then, I'll tell you that, um, the single family market is still relatively weak and, and a lot weaker than I think people realize. Um, if you look at, well, there's a chart in that, in that deck that you've got there, but, um, but the detached house prices have been down for the last couple of months on a seasonally adjusted basis. And you can see that they, you know, they fell in 2016. They kind of rebounded a bit, but they never really gained a ton of traction, right? I think you're looking at page, uh, page 12 for you there, Preet, right? So, so they've basically yep. been flat since, uh, since Q1 of this year, mm-hmm. in Vancouver, which I think most people would be surprised at. All of the strength right now in Vancouver is in the condo market. And, and, and we're talking serious strength. Right. Um, now part of that's an affordability issue that the, the locals, they can't afford ten million for a single right, detached. Know, shocking, right? So you <laughs> you end up with just this kind of like funneling of demand into sure. one segment, which yeah. is it's also happening here in Toronto. Yeah. Um, but that single family market is still relatively weak in Vancouver, and I think also. Um, so I've got some industry, or got some areas in Vancouver that I track as kind of a proxy for the foreign bid. Okay. Uh, and you'll see. Uh, let's see. You probably have that chart, but. Yeah, right there on page 14. So one of the things, if you look at like, for example, so your, your listeners can keep ta- track of this. So if you look at like Vancouver West or West Vancouver, which are two separate neighborhoods, uh, and you look at the detached market, um, there's quite a bit of evidence, albeit anecdotal, that that was uh, one part of the city that attracted a lot of foreign capital. Right. And the realtors there will generally tell you that. And what you, you see talk to my is parents. That, they got a place in West Van. Right. There you so go. They were renting it out. Yeah. So this is, a, so this is like you, you see the sales trends way below peak levels, never recovered. 
right? Uh, and if you look here in Toronto, by the way, if you were to look at, say, Richmond Hill and Markham detached, uh, same sort of dynamic. So you, you could actually make the argument that the foreign demand has slowed in, 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 in Canada. Um, but in Vancouver, the detached markets never really come back. The, the, the condo market's gone just completely gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Um, very solid macroeconomic backdrop. So, so there are some legitimate underlying, uh, demand fundamentals at play. You look here in Toronto, it's, it's, it's actually a lot more interesting. I think Toronto's the most interesting market right now in, in the country. So you have highly segmented market. In terms of um, you know condos versus versus detached or single family, and then this this crazy divergence between like the nine hundred five and the four one six. So if you happen to own a home and you're like core Toronto, uh, especially the condo market, like th- this little mini correction in in early twenty seventeen, you, you didn't notice that at all, mm-hmm. right? And for you, it's probably in the rearview mirror because the condo market, by and large, it's not back to like boom times like it was, but it's still very very firm in the four one six. Single family in the four one six, uh, let's call it balanced. Okay. So so prices are off, maybe call it flat to maybe off five percent from peak, um, but generally trending in the right direction. But you get outside of the four one six, you get into the nine hundred five, and you get into the single family space. Serious issues, serious. And when I say serious issues, um, so we track some same unit sales. So. So, for example, homes that sold in March or April that have since sold again this mm-hmm. year. And a lot of them, we're talking single family, 905, a lot of those homes are trading hands for, for 20% less or more than what they traded for in the spring. Really? So, actual transactions. Right. So, we're not talking about like average price or anything right. weird like that where there's like compositional shifts yeah. or, or games played with the numbers. I'm talking about this exact home sold this spring. It just sold again in November or December. It's sold for twenty or twenty-five percent less, like major declines. Now, do you have any insight as to why those houses sold in such a short period of time? Like, why were there two transactions in the same year? That's a good question. Uh, In some cases, uh, some of it is um, deals that went firm, fell through. Okay, houses relisted, sells again. Is it some cases it takes ten months for it to sell again? Right, and 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 it sells the next price they get eight months or 10 months later, whatever, is 25% less than the contract they had. Right. So we're talking major declines, which is, you know, it's funny. On the last podcast we did, we talked about this whole idea of like leverage can be dangerous when you're late <laughs> in the cycle. And there's what? a great example. <laughs> like, you know, you feel bad for those people that bought in in April in, in some of these areas in, in the 905. Do I feel bad for them? You know, I do. Yeah, it's tough. Like, it's it's just tough. Like, you know, this is, a, they, they were blindsided by some regulation. They, you and I understand that psychology is a powerful thing. And yes. people, when you get into these strong upwards, you know, movements in, in, in any asset price, people just do crazy things. You're right. right? I do and feel it's, bad. It's for hard. Them. Right. So, so, so that's, I mean, that's a game changer. If you plunk down $2 million on a home in, in the, you know, the 905 hinterlands, like you're, like you could be down, like there's your, that could be your life savings gone already. Now, yeah. look, whatever, it's going to come back eventually. But I, I think, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I think that there's more pain to come for that, mm-hmm. that 905. There was a, uh, a couple of stories I saw on uh, local media about, um, I think it was in the first quarter of the year when house prices were really spiking. Um, and then there was a drop off and people were walking away from the deals that they yep. had committed to. So do you have any insights into that? Like how, how pervasive was that? Or is it... A handful of stories that got media attention. No, or? it was a thing. Yeah, it was a real thing. I had. Uh, I mean, no, it, it was definitely happening. Uh, I spoke with lawyers that were talking about 
you know, just how much of their business had, had become that exact dynamic. So it was a real thing. A lot of that, and I, and I would say that um, a lot of the turmoil we saw in Toronto over the summer was a lot of that working its way through the system. Because what, right. what we found was people had, um, see, back in, in, in the spring, you couldn't, um, you know, in a normal market, you would try to sell your house. And then you go buy another one or you would buy a house with the condition that you sell yours. Right. Right. But as we all know, the market got so hot that people are like, oh, that's fine. I'll just, I'll buy this one. I'll commit to buying this one. And then I'll list mine for sale. And it would no problem. It'll it'll sell by tomorrow at this time. Right. (laughs) Which is what was happening. (laughs) Yeah. And instead, uh, people went in, they went firm on these houses in, you know, April and thinking that they would list. Uh, and have no problem selling. And all of a sudden, the market stopped on a dime. Right. And so now you're stuck with you own a house, you own a mortgage, and you're legally contracted to close on this one over here. Right. So for that reason, you know, we we knew there'd be all sorts of stress working our way through the system, all sorts of people that were carrying two mortgages and all sorts of, you know, funny. And 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 you saw that through the summer where there's a lot of really panicked selling. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that I think some of the worst of that's worked its way through the system. But what what concerns me, and kind of going back to Vancouver, because I think a lot of people are of the view that Toronto will see this kind of like Vancouver style rebound. Right. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that's the case. So I I kind of laid out what happened in Vancouver when sales fell, which is that new listings fell sharply. That has not been the case in Toronto. Uh, and so, for example, last month, Van, um, the the new listings here in Toronto are up. I'd have to look at but exactly, but call it thirty percent year over year, like big jumps, right. record high in terms of new listings here in Toronto. So until that stops, then you're going to continue to see this big build in inventory. So like homes for sale in Toronto right now, it's more than double what was for sale last year at this time. And when you get out into some of those hard hit areas in the 905, it's triple or in some cases up 4X, right? It's like big, big increases, right? So I don't see it yet. And and even though we've seen an increase in sales off the lows, some of that's in part due to people trying to front run these B20 rules, like buy now before I get squeezed out in January. Right. Right. So, so I don't know that this, like the, the, the real strong uptick in sales in the last couple of months is, is, is going to be an actual durable uptick. But I'll tell you that I don't really care. I, for me, the more important metric, and I've said this for a while now, is, is the flow of new listings. If that continues at the current pace, then there's a lot more downside still in Toronto. Okay. Um, cause I was going to ask you, um, you know, and I have to say myself, you know, for years I've been thinking that Toronto house prices are just nuts. Um, when I look at the the price to rent ratios, mm-hmm. um, what do you think is going to be the ultimate conclusion here? Is it that, yeah, Toronto is a world-class city and this is just what it's going to be? Um, are we going to, is there a likelihood of a correction um, and maybe remind people of how severe a correction could happen. I'm not saying that it's going to, but what hap- has happened in the past? Well, you, all you have to do is ask the people in, you know, in in the 905 that bought in March or April. Right? Okay. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what a correction feels like. Right. right. Um, you know, I, I think. Yeah, you know, I'm conflicted on this one. I I think that if if you if you have a view on a market, you should be able to articulate the other side. Right. Um, and articulate it intelligently. Uh, so I think there's a lot of people out there who, um, you know, they, they have a lot of, um, they're, they're conflicted. In, in this. So, so you, you know, you hear some people that are either bullish or bearish on Toronto. And in a lot of cases, they're, they're talking their own book. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you kind of strip that out and you look at some more intelligent people that are commenting on this, I think there's something to be said 
or let me rephrase that. I don't discount completely this possibility that Toronto, and when I say Toronto, I'm talking the core. So 416 core prime area is trending towards pricing that's more international. I'm not saying that's likely, but I'm saying that I don't discount that completely. Got it. Um, Now, uh, if that's the case, then... I think what you could see in the next cycle, and, and let's just revert back for a minute. We we do know that real estate is cyclical, mm-hmm. okay? It's been a long time since we've seen a true cycle <laughs> yeah. outside of these kind of you know isolated uh, issues in certain parts of of, of the country. Um, so we will see another cycle. When that cycle plays out, um, it's going to be. I think there's a lot of evidence that the next cycle will be a bad one. Uh, for a lot of the, you know, lot high household indebtedness, extremely low rates with really not a lot of room to go to, to cushion any downside. Um, but if you think about what that could look like, um, if you look at the U.S. as an example or any international downturn, if you study any international downturn, what you find is that the core areas tend to fall less and, and, and recover quicker. Right. Where you run into a lot of problems and where you see these like really catastrophic house price declines is when you get way outside of the core into some of these suburbs that have built up and where you had this like huge, you know, drive until you qualify phenomenon. Right. Uh, right. And which is totally, which is totally symptomatic of these, you know, yeah, yeah. literally if you go back and you Google drive until you qualify 2005, you'll see all sorts of articles around like Las Vegas and like, right. and this is a phenomenon. This was a thing back then too. Right. And right. they built up these, these, these cities way outside of the core. And when the correction came, those are the areas that got hammered. And they got, and they, and, and in many cases, they have not yet recovered to their peak. So for me, I would say that the downtown core in Toronto and in Vancouver is more likely to hold its value relative to some of those areas. Like I would be really concerned about putting 5% down. You know, it's different if I lived there and I worked there, but if I was, if I was working downtown Toronto and commuting and, and, and buying, you know, an hour away, um, to me, that's that's a really dangerous trade because if the market turns on you, it's going to turn badly in those suburbs. Any insights into uh, the rental market in Toronto? Yeah, so it's still really tight. Um, that is one of the uh, supporting factors behind this tight resale market is that the rental market is also quite tight. I think that 2018 is going to be a year where we see that change. Uh, in what way? Well, there's two dynamics at play. One is that... Um, we now have some Airbnb restrictions that are going to come in mid-year. Oh, right. Um, yes. Right. And they've got that in, in Vancouver as well. So you will see, I believe, uh, a migration of some of these kind of secondary units like condos uh, that were in the Airbnb pool move back into the long-term rental pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. I think the bigger thing is um, you've got a pile of, of new construction of purpose-built rentals. Um, I mean, here, look, look at this look, page 15. You probably have in front of you there. And I know, sorry, this doesn't help your, your listeners at all, but just, just, they have you to can pay. describe They it. have to pay if they want this research. <laughs> but I'll tell you, if, if, if you describe this chart for rental apartment oh, units wow. under construction in British Columbia, and which includes, obviously includes Vancouver. It's a hockey it's stick. A, it's a total hockey <laughs> stick, right? It's basically flat around like 2,000 units going back all the way to 1990. There's like a little bit of a spike in kind of the mid 2000s up to like 4,000. And then it goes, straight up, like literally a straight line, 90 degree angle up to 12,000 units in the last couple of years, right? And in Ontario, it's not quite as extreme, but we're back up to all time highs. And, and it's funny because like people, people are always saying to me like, oh, there's just, we haven't built any purpose built rentals in 30 years. And that's just not true. We're, we, we've got a lot 
in the pipeline. Right. Right. It's back up to all time. Now, that's not accounting for population. So if you normalize that for the actual population, it's obviously it's less than the previous peak, but it's up a lot. Right. And if you look at the timeline to construction on these, it's generally around 17 to 18 months. Uh, which is quite a bit less than than it is for condos. So so you look at when these were started and you kind of tack 18 months onto that and you should start to see a big uptick in completions in 2018, right? A purpose-built rental. So I think you should see that ease a bit. Um, it's I think it's going to be a tough year for landlords. If you have listeners that own, for example, a condo and it's you know maybe cash flow neutral or a little bit cash flow negative, you really have to be careful because one of the trends that we're seeing a lot of is these small landlords are going back to their bank at renewal to get their mortgage and mortgage rates are going up. They're going up. They're, they're, they're really taking advantage of a lot of these these small time and the uh, landlords, landlords aren't allowed to increase rent anymore like they used to. Correct. So so you've got a dynamic here where you've got a cap on on the rents you can Was it 1.5% per year? Uh, it's the lesser of 1.5% or no, uh, inflation, CPI inflation or 1.5%, I believe is. Okay. In any case, there's now a cap on the rent increase. And it's pretty, it's, you know, when you compare it to how much your, um, you know, your, your maintenance fees are going up, I mean, it's, it's, it's eating into your bottom line. Right. Right. So you've got that working against you. You've got mortgage rates that are disproportionately going up for investors. Um, and you got to be mindful of that. We've, we've heard a few horror stories of people that were caught, you know, thought they were going to go back and renew at three and a half percent and they get quoted at five and a half percent and it blows out their cash flow and they have to sell. Right. I've heard a few of those. Um, that's fairly recent. Uh, so, you know, I think it's going to be a bit. And then, and then if, if you get a bit of softening in that market, I think it'll be an interesting, well, interesting is the wrong word. It'll be a, be a less than ideal year for some <laughs> for people who are highly levered in the landlord space. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right, Ben. I think we're going to leave it there. We're just ticking past the one hour mark um, on this interview. Yeah, I know. And we've got more that we'll cover. Actually, you know what? I'll 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 let you determine if there's anything else that you want to get off your chest on this edition of your visit to the podcast, or if you want to save it for your next visit. Oh, man. Uh, let's see. Well, um, one of the things I guess I would say uh, to your listeners is, um, first of all, be ready for some really nasty headlines in, in late Q1, early Q2 of 2018, because if you look at pricing in Toronto, I'm talking about Toronto specific right now. Um you look at the pricing in Toronto, it peaked, you had this parabolic rise in kind of first quarter last year from yeah. January to March, where yeah. it went up, literally went up like 20% in three months uh, and then and then came down quite sharply. If you move that forward and you look at what's going to happen in kind of March, April this year, we butt up against these really nasty year-over-year comparisons. And so you're probably going to see average resale prices down 15 or 20%. Right. So right. you're talking about March, April, 2018. 2018. Yeah. Correct. And, um, part of that is due to just compositional shift. Yep. The, the single family market's getting hit really hard. So, so that kind of pulls down the average. But from a psychological perspective, um, it's going to make some nasty headlines. I'm right. Sure, so, yeah. so when you, you see newspapers quoting, so just be mindful that is coming. Um, it is going to be reflective in part of just a shift in composition, but part of it's just that prices are actually going to be off quite a bit. So that could really, really change sentiment a little bit um, because you've got that headline number, uh, mm-hmm. potentially a, uh, a first quarter rate hike. Put those two together and people are saying, aha, 
this correction we've been waiting for, now is the time, and then sentiment can turn on a dime. We don't know what it ultimately will take for that to change, but it could change, um, turn on a dime, right? Yeah, I think, it, well, it's, it's going to be a shock, I think, for some people. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, be, be ready for that. I think, like I said, I um, if I was looking at the 905, um, I still think there's more downside there. I know it's already, uh, it's already been pretty hard hit, but when I look at what's coming online still for units under construction in that single family space, still at almost 30-year highs, there's a lot of inventory still to come on online there. Um, so I, I don't think the worst is behind us there. The, the core of the downtown um, actually looks all right. The active inventory and, and kind of the flow of new listings has been okay. Um, so I'm, I'm a little less concerned about that. The other area that has me a bit concerned going into 2018 is the new construction market. So there'd be a bit of a nasty surprise for some people who bought a pre-construction condo or a single family home in kind of 2017 or before that go to close on it in 2018. Right. Because they may not realize that they now have to qualify under these new B20 rules, mm-hmm. right? Which is going to be a bit of a shock. If you, you know, if you, if you think that the amount that you're qualifying for has just been cut by about 20%, the maximum amount, um, if you were butting up against that, you may not qualify for the mortgage to close. Right, which which is another way of saying that I think we're going to see a very active assignment market in Ontario in 2018. <laughs> right. And what's and just, assignment mean? Yeah, just for your listeners. So assignment is is when you buy a new unbuilt unit to be delivered at a later date. Uh, in some cases, you have the ability to resell that contract to someone else. So you're not actually selling the property itself. You're selling the contract to close on that property. Right. Yeah. right? And, and you'll probably see a big, a, a very active assignment market. Now, where it potentially becomes problematic, and this is probably a story more for like 2019 or 2020, is um, you know, getting back to some of these crazy condo investors. These new condos are being bought at a significant premium to resale market. Like in some cases, we're talking at, you know $200 a square foot more than resale. Really? Which is insane. I know. That's my reaction. Exactly. What are you people thinking? If you go back, <laughs> you go back like, so a great guy to talk to is David Fleming. You should have him on your podcast. He's oh, yeah, I should. Guy. Yeah. So, and, and, I get his flyers all the time. To. Oh, he's awesome. I love the guy. So he's one uh, realtor who is a, uh, and there's a, there's a number of them, don't get me wrong, but yeah. there's also some people in the industry that aren't always, you know, straight with the facts. What? David Fleming's one of those guys. Salespeople? No. I know. Crazy. But he always made the point that um, if you go back far enough, and by far enough, I mean like seven, eight years uh, before this crazy boom. <laughs> yeah. um, if you were a developer and you wanted to sell a condo, typically you'd have to price it below the resale market to attract investors. And your margin there was that you're buying it at a discount. And as it completes, it aligns with resale and there's, there's your profit. And he has this great analogy, David does. And he made this video a couple of years ago where he's like, he's got this, he's got like a full cake, like nicely iced and looks awesome. He's like, okay, you can buy this brand, like fully made iced cake. It's beautiful. You can eat it right now, five bucks. Or over here, I'll sell you a box of cake mix for 10 bucks. And you have to go home and like make it yourself and everything. He's like, which one should you buy? <laughs> right? Like, what right. does, right? So shouldn't it be that the cake mix? that isn't yet made should be less than the, the cake that's already made. And he's making the point that that's normally how it is in the condo market. But in the last few years, it switched because there was so much demand for new inventory from investors and speculators. Right. And, and, so, uh, and so now just to tie that, that all together, um, these people who are going to have problems financing some of them uh, under the new B20, it, it's compounded if they paid well above market price. Because yeah. now they not only have, have financing, they have appraisal issues as well. 
Oh, boy. Right. Right. So you see the issue, right? Yeah. So, so people just need to be mindful of that if you're listening and you, uh, and you have a pre-construction condo that you still have to finance, you may want to go talk to your lender and get an appraisal on that and maybe look at us potentially, you know, what you qualify for and whether you should assign it. That's good advice. And I will ask you one last thing. Uh, for people who are thinking about becoming a first time home buyer right now, what's your general advice to them? What should they factor in. I'm not going to ask you to say, you know, there's <laughs> going to be a market correction in June or anything like that. But yeah. what's your general advice to people who are like, no, I want to be a homeowner. Everyone tells me I should. I'm, I'm gearing up to, I'm setting up my down payment. What's your general advice to them? Yeah, look, I would say that um, if you, so make sure you love the place, make sure you're okay being there for five or 10 years. Um, because the last thing you want is is for you to buy into a place, prices fall, your labor mobility is gone, you can't move to pursue other career options. Um, that could very much be a reality for some of the people that bought in Q1 of this year. Right. right? Um, so make sure that that you're willing to stay there for five. If you're not going to be there for at least five years, don't don't do it. Right. right? Um, I would say try to get the twenty percent down. Give yourself a bit of a buffer. Make sure that you've tested your finance as well. I mean, these new stress tests will kind of do that for you. Yeah. Uh, but make sure you're comfortable with that. If you have to go to a private lender to finance any part of it, you sh- you really shouldn't be buying. You have no business buying if that's who you have to go to. Um, and just be mindful that yeah, rates are probably going to go up a bit more before they stabilize. Uh, make sure you've got that budgeted in. And uh, be prepared to ride it out if it if it does go down. Excellent, wonderful advice as always. A very insightful interview as always. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. And uh, as you know, every guest gets uh, you know a commercial at the end to uh, promote whatever they want. Um, so the floor is yours. If you have anything, you know your Twitter handle, a website, if people want to inquire about paying for your research, you know where do, where do they go? Yeah, no, I, I can't. Again, I'm I'm really limited in who I can put on my distribution, so I won't put a plug in for for any of my research. Um, oh, you don't sell it. Uh, it's not to not to individuals. It's re, it's institutional. Institutional, in price. right? Yeah, well, I've uh, got some institutional listeners. So, oh yeah, well there you go. If you're an institutional listener, you can uh, you know info at northcove.net. Um, and otherwise, if you're not, don't bug them. <laughs> <laughs> happy to hey, listen. I'm always happy to chat with people, especially if you know if you're in the industry and you just want to kind of chew the fat a bit. I'm always happy to. Yeah, connect. and uh, Twitter handle. At Ben Rabidou, it is a private account, yep. so uh, you know I don't always get around to uh, to activating all the followers. Right, uh, I'm, just, I'm not really a publicity guy. I'm quite happy to kind of. So you're you not going to start your own show. podcast because there's be a huge demand well, for it. Well, it's just it. I'd be. I'd be. It's tough to. It's tough to do something. It's time free when you're trying to. Yeah, you don't make any money it. from it. Like I don't. I mean, it's really a waste of my time. Well, I'm not so much that, but I cannibalize <laughs> my own business. But it'd be fun. It'd be fun. Uh, but you know what? I instead just, I'll, I'll just keep I'll coming you, up on this one. Well, and I, I, and I give you good ideas for guys like David Fleming and Scott yes. Terrio. Those guys, are good yeah. dudes. To keep talk it to. coming. Keep it coming. My listeners appreciate. It. All right, so that's it for this week. Again, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show, and to all the listeners, we will see you again next time, whenever that may be. I know it's been like months since the last one before Scott, and then it's been like four days uh, between that and and this one. But uh, you know me, I just I just can't be bothered. <laughs> so, anyways, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.